0: I can enjoy it. <laughs> In November of 93, I took a bass riff to Ian's place, and the reception was immediate. He picked up his guitar and found something that fit right away. Keith came in, played on his thighs or Tupperware or something, knowing what he could add to it. And Brad started in with lyrics that would eventually become, Something's on your side. It wasn't the first Sofa song I had originated. There had been another called Half Bad before that but it's still one of my favorites of ours. It was Joy Division that inspired me to bring it in, but it reminds me, too, of Bauhaus's "Bella Lugosi's Dead with the descending bass line. Brad manages to bring something not at all campy or cartoony goth to it, and it's one song of ours you can make out the lyrics quite clearly. Not that I always know what he's on about, but... We all liked it so much, I suppose, we couldn't bear the thought of cutting it down. It ended up as a nine-minute epic, appearing at the end of our first album, and was a song we could only ever play live once or twice, for a band generally unwilling to pay much heed to rock or pop conventions. Sofa was also no one's idea of a jam band, and we usually kept our songs pretty concise. It was one of those brilliantly sunny, impossibly cold Saturday mornings in Montreal between Christmas of 93 and New Year's that we laid down the bed tracks for the album. I met Ian at his place, and we walked over to get our amps from the rehearsal space, catching a taxi down to a studio in old Montreal. Our friend Kevin Komodo was there to record the band. He didn't want to be called a producer. I can't recall if we did it in one day or two. It must have been two. But I'm pretty sure I was never fully warm throughout our time there. We ended up with nine songs, 52 minutes of music. We had rehearsed every song within an inch of its life, so there were no outtakes, and everything was used. Say what you will about those young men, they knew better than to waste an opportunity. A few songs dated back to that Beaubier rehearsal space where I met the guys, but most were written after I had joined six months prior, It's a funny thing to hear 22 years later. We would, within the year it was released, essentially disown the record as a hastily put-together document. In fact, the two albums that followed were each far more quickly assembled, more on that soon. But the thing was, this was Sofa before we had found our sound. The album, appropriately, would be called Test Tone. We were casting about for the direction our influences would take us, and there were hints in there, but it was a bit of a mess. Better thought of, maybe, as a series of demos than a proper album. It also took forever to get the money together to see the master recording turned into CDs. In 1994, it was still a big deal for a young band to release a CD rather than a cassette. This, we were certain, separated the serious artists from the posers. We were almost done mixing it in early winter, but we wouldn't have the CDs in hand until the fall, with a little financial boost from Ian's friend, Aiden. By the time the CD launch party came, we were bored with the songs and had written another album's worth of material, but held it together long enough to get through the show, thinking it was only fair to play most of the disc. One late addition to the album was a sad bit of soul that we wrote after we were done in the studio, We had no money to record it, as we had the other songs, but Kevin came to our jam space and set up a portable digital recorder. On the CD, the song Big Dance Hall has a layer of vinyl scratches and pops laid thickly over it, our self-conscious attempt to disguise that it was a quickie recording and didn't belong with the other tracks. But I prefer to hear it today without that. It was another sign of where we were soon headed, We played it only a handful of times live, as was our way, but I felt it was one of our better efforts and never given its due. 1994 saw us play a host of local shows, and our sound was toughening up, getting a bit darker and weirder. One important piece of the puzzle came when lowlifes broke into our basement local at the corner of St. Laurent Pine. They made off with two instruments, the guitar belonging to the band Bliss, and my own bass. Mine wasn't worth all that much. An Ibanez Road Star II. It might have cost me two or three hundred when I bought it in 1987, but it was all I had, and I hadn't been saving anything working at the hotel. Fate conspired to teach me all kinds of things in 1994, however. As at the same time I was being robbed of my instrument, I was approved for the first credit card I ever had in the mail. I duly took it down to York Pawn Shop, walked upstairs with my roommate, Gordon Hashimoto, and maxed it out, picking up a 78 Fender precision bass. It was well-worn, but it played great. I'd always felt a bit self-conscious with my Ibanez on stage. I didn't know anyone else who played one. The way it was built, one couldn't use any slapping technique. The action of the strings was too high above the frets. If there was any silver lining to be found in my losing my trusty Ibanez, it might be that I would be able to add a little grit to the sofa bottom end. By October, we had played the release show and I had taken it on myself to send the disc out to get some attention beyond Montreal. It had a lukewarm review in one of the four local weekly rags and was ignored by the others, as well as the mainstream gazette. The Big Rock station, even with its show devoted to local talent, snubbed us, so we were grateful for the occasional interview on the college stations. I was happy to see a very nice review on the back page of Canadian Musician magazine. No one in the band read the magazine, though I used to. And I was gutted to see an outright pan in chart. It felt like kicking a man when he's down. Sensitive boys playing earnest music, we should have seen it coming. It was just about the end of my promoting attempts anyway. It was clear my notions of what one needed to do to survive the music biz born out of the trade magazine articles and rock radio stations I'd listened to. not in sync with what the band was actually doing or where the business was soon headed. Besides, I didn't want to be a manager or a promoter and I was content to be the bassist rather than the singer and lyricist. Brad was better at these than I was. He also took the lead in designing the majority of our artwork for releases and posters and the occasional t-shirt. My last hurrah as a wheeler dealer though came after New Years of 95. I was now living on my own in a shoebox and had seen my girlfriend off to the train that would take her back to Toronto where she had moved to study film. A few hours later, I was back in my apartment when she called, out of breath. She had taken the taxi from the train station. And the driver had it tuned to CFNY, Toronto, the country's biggest alternative rock station. I'd forgotten that I'd sent them our CD and press packet months before. They were featuring Test Tone on their own Sunday night Canadian music show and she had run into her place and called me, her landline phone, to the speaker of the stereo. It didn't amount to much, but it was a shot in the arm, a nice little gesture to give me some hope for the future. Your side. Something's on your side. Something's on your side. Episode 66, Something's on Your Side, written and read by Scott Clarkson, music by Sofa and Garner Firebird.